The Old Testament reading this morning is from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 12. And it's a severe test of pronunciation. So bear with me. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the law had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand it. No, understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. <clears throat> Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on his right, stood Metaiah, Simar, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseiah, and on his left were Pedaiah, Mishael, Halkajah, Hashum, Hashbanadah, Zechariah, and Meshalom. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Sebhai, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kelita, Azara, Joshabad, Hanan, and Peleiah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. The New Testament reading comes from John chapter 6, verses 44 to 54. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. 
Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, and I will give for the life which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Robin, for for reading. Um, You did very well with the names. As Pete said, we've come to the last of our uh, compressed series on gospel rhythms. So we're considering uh, the five rhythms uh, that make up the acronym BLESS. Can anyone... um, I don't have any lollies up the front. I was going to bring some lollies and and do a pop quiz, but can anyone give me... or Can anyone give the acronym what, what the acronym stands for? Anyone? Bless, listen, eat, speak, Sabbath. So we've been doing them a little bit out of order. Pete last week uh, picked up, or two weeks ago picked up uh, the L and the first S, uh, listen and speak, and we did what it means to be a blessing uh, the week before that. But this week we're going to pick up on eat and Sabbath. And I feel like it's kind of appropriate to be doing that this week uh, because both eating and Sabbath uh, are things that in our culture often involve rest and, and have a, a tied together by rest. Uh, and this week has been uh, the Anglican Synod, the conglomeration of governance of Anglo nerds in Melbourne, uh, which basically means that uh, we've been meeting in the evenings uh, and all day, or well, most of the day yesterday, and I feel exhausted. <laughs> In fact, if, we, if I had, had another 30 seconds of um, Bible reading, I might have gone and got another coffee to bring it up with me, uh, which I think is the ultimate sign of being a Melbourne uh, Christian, is that you just take coffee with you regardless of where you are and what context you're in. But as I was reflecting on rest uh, recently, um, ironically, while I was feeling very tired, um, I've been reading some old Russian history uh, for fun. Uh, I know, everyone shakes their head and goes, why would you want to do that? Uh, But I was reading about uh, a period of um, very early on in in the um, industrialization of Russia where this happens. This is the 1930, where all of the Russian... um, all, all Russian workers were allocated a colour and they abolished weekends. So your colour that you were given, either yellow, orange, red, blue or green, was the day you had off. It was a random ballot 
and you were just you were told you are green or you are blue and they would go through factories and say you're red you're green you're yellow you're orange you're blue you're red you're green you're yellow you're orange you're blue only i do it in russian and i can't do it in russian <laughs> um and what what that meant was that they could essentially run 24-7. That was the whole point of industrialization of Russia, was the, uh, the working of the people would make a more productive Russia, and therefore they wanted to run the factories 24-7, and the best way of doing that was to abolish all weekends, uh, because you know, weekends are the uh, bourgeoisie uh, luxury that um, you don't need if you're a good, solid worker. The problem was, and I think we, it's very easy to see the problem, is that when you randomly allocate people's days off, people don't get to gather with anyone else quite often. One of the very first critiques of this system, and so you'll notice that up the top it says 1929-1930. That was the total extent of this experiment. They managed it for just under a year before it collapsed in a massive heap. One of the big critiques very early on was for people not not bemoaning the fact that they couldn't rest, but they, they actually couldn't rest with each other. They couldn't do rest in community. It wasn't just about sleeping, it wasn't just about physical recuperation, but it was about being with others as you did that. So one uh, Russian worker uh, reflected, what are we to do at home when no one is around, when the wife is at work, the children are at school? You just have to go to the tea room and there you don't know anyone. What do you do when you have to celebrate all things by yourself? And so they abolished the experiment after uh, around about 11 months, uh, 13 in some parts of the country. And it was considered to be a failed experiment on the work of the people. But I wonder these days, is our society that much different? We traditionally, we've upheld the weekend as the, the thing that you get to by the end of the week. You roll off Wednesday, which has been often renamed Hump Day. You get to uh, the weekend and you collapse. But these days, the weekend is also often a time of work. As a minister, that's kind of true for me, but at the same time, the, after the church this morning, I'm going to be going to my son's childcare for a photo session uh, because they're doing, running a fundraiser and I thought it would be nice to get some photos for Christmas. But that means that people are working on their weekend and therefore their weekend isn't actually weekend on when everyone else is having a weekend, it's a, they're having a day off somewhere else probably. Well, for that matter, the gig economy, the fact that even when you're not working, you can still drive Uber or you can run for Uber Eats, or you can do Deliveroo. Those things that enable so much of our society to work well are also the things that enable our society to not rest well, to not do Sabbath well, to not do things together well. And one of the other parts of that this all leads to is just a general feeling of hurry. You just have to be doing something at all times. But what happens when that finally reaches an end? When 
like I was feeling it uh, after lunch yesterday at the end of Synod, and you just want to collapse. Well, I'd suggest actually our society does two things with that. One is that we either decide that uh, we indulge our slothfulness, you collapse on the couch. Netflix has that insidious feature of uh, 10 seconds after the end of one episode, it will start the next one for you, just in case uh, you're you're too tired to actually get to the remote to click next episode. the, the trend of watching entire seasons of a show all at once is upon us. Uh, the very fact that uh, when, so when most TV has been uh, done, it's been extended out over seasons, over, you know, you've got 26 episodes and, and you, everyone waits for the next week to see the next episode. And uh, these days, Netflix will release an entire season at once. And so from 9 o'clock or whatever it is, uh, whatever time it's, it's released, you can sit there for all 13 episodes and watch them back to back, if you really want. And actually, the stats that you can pull from Netflix says most people really do want. Something like 40% of, of, of viewers will view an entire season at a time. We love it when we can just veg out and just do nothing. Or the other thing that we often do is we go, I'm not going to uh, indulge my slothfulness. And so I'm going to put restrictions and limits on the way that I indulge these things so I can restrict myself in other ways. I can rest in other ways. I have a friend in New York City, uh, and for them, the tech Sabbath is huge. It is absolutely taking off over there. Uh, based on the Jewish notion of the Sabbath uh, and the recognition that uh, the tech that's in our pockets so often means that we end up working even when we're trying to rest. Uh, so I was having a chat to him earlier this week and he was walking uh, down, down a street in New York and we're talking about Sabbath and then he, about an hour later he sends me a photo. A photo of a... Uh, box in the front of a Tiffany & Co. Uh, store, and it is an iSabbath box. Gilded, there were various jewels, which I don't know the name of them are, probably Diamantes or, or something or other, given the level of store, it probably was, wasn't. Uh, it was $900, and it was a little coffin that you could put your phone in for the Sabbath. We want to place restrictions on the ways that we have to, that we feel like we have to work in order to rest well. I'm often reminded of this pattern of rest and work, most starkly when I'm in the States for a conference, an annual conference I go to the week before Thanksgiving. Now, this annual conference, like many conferences, is the only time that most of, most of us as academics get to see each other. Uh, and so from about 7 a.m. to midnight every day, you're out and about catching up with people, having meetings, talking with others. Uh, it's very common that we'd end up going out for breakfast and then finally getting back by about midnight to collapse and sleep, ready to rinse and repeat for the next day. That, that conference finishes on the Tuesday, the 
before the fourth Thursday in November. I can see some people understanding why I've mentioned the fourth Thursday in November. The fourth Thursday in November is Thanksgiving in America. It's a time where everyone in the States drops tools, or most people drops tool, drop tools, and rest. It's a great holiday. It's one of my favorite holidays. It's actually the holiday that I think we should adopt here in Australia the most, and that's going to cause some controversy. But at the same time, it's a holiday that is tinged by the recognition that Black Friday, the busiest day of shopping and consumption in America, is the next day. And actually, that's increasingly starting to infringe on, um, on Thanksgiving, with some, um, some places sta starting to bring their employees in at lunch or from, from midday or five o'clock so people can shop for a little bit longer. But that said, Thanksgiving, I think, is, one of the, is a recognition of what we should be doing. It's a, what we should be doing to counteract this sort of lifestyle the, of, of Russia that we should be celebrating together, eating together, and Sabbathing together. So there are three aspects we're going to look at this morning. A threefold rhythm, which is a solution to the struggle of rest. So we'll move through those three together. I've added an extra rhythm in there, celebrate, uh, because I think it actually helps us with understanding what eating and Sabbathing looks like. So celebration, as I said, Thanksgiving is a great celebration, but we have a mixed relationship with celebration, don't we? We either want to celebrate things that happen naturally, birthdays, and we should celebrate them, but at the same time, they're going to happen, and they're going to happen quite regularly, and most people actually don't want to celebrate their birthday, especially after you get past a certain age, which, you know, the, the increase in... I, this is my 21st plus some number birthday, where some number is normally obscured entirely, so you don't really know what it is. I, find it, I often find it amusing that everyone wants to get to a certain age, and then once they get to that certain age, they, that's just, it must be the ideal age, and you, just wanna, you never want to mention anything past that ever again. So we either, we either have that sort of celebration, or we end up binging on celebration. I, I noticed recently there's all of the articles about uh, an AFL footballer who I've got no idea who he is because I don't follow the AFL, um, whose car is still present at the MCG because he's still out celebrating the win uh, after uh, the grand final. Um, I note that the grand final it was three weeks ago. That's quite a heck of a celebration. But I think we're called to celebrate better than that. In Nehemiah, we see actually what, what true celebration uh, looks like uh, for the people of God. That we're called to celebrate better than just our own achievements or the, the things that come up in our life. Uh, but we celebrate instead what God has done for us. In Nehemiah 8, uh, Ezra reads the law to the people. They've just um, come back from exile They've rebuilt the city. Uh, they're reading out the Torah, the law for the people, so that they can know how to live. And there's that repeated thing in there that all of the people who could understand come to, 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 read the, to hear the law being read to them and actually to be explained to them. So uh, Nehemiah 8.8, 8, 
They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And this is a time of, of great national uh, interest, that people are coming back together to, to be able to read together. But it's challenging for them. They read the law, they read, they read what God has done for them, and they realize how much they have actually let, let themselves down and let God down. They're cut up. All the people begin weeping as they listen to the words of the law. That they realize that they aren't as holy as the law asks them. They haven't been doing what the law wants them to do. So what's the, what, what does Ezra and what do, what did Ezra and Nehemiah do at this point? Well, they tell the people to actually stop reading the law. They tell the people to go away, eat and drink, enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. Because the ultimate part of um, reading the law, of learning what God has done for them, should be the celebration of what God has done. Because they're cut up by the law, they should actually be celebrating the redemption, the bringing back from exile, the goodness of God to his people. And why is that? Why do they celebrate? Is it just simply that uh, they've got their, their, their town and their city back, that they can be uh, at home again, they don't have to be in exile, they don't have to be away uh, in, a, in a foreign land? Well, no. It's because now... Only now they understand the words that have been made known to them. They understand what God has done for his people. The great grace and the great mercy that he has given to them. The new way of life that he has provided for them. Celebration actually requires an understanding of why we celebrate. One of the weird things about uh, kids' birthday parties, I find, is often when kids are quite young, uh, they burst into tears at the sight of a cake with candles on it and everyone singing happy birthday to them. They just look at it and just go, what is going on? I don't understand. There's all these people in my face singing happy birthday to me. What is it even a birthday? I don't understand. I don't get it. And they burst into tears. They are just confronted. And I think part of it is just because they don't get what's going on. They don't understand what is happening why everyone else is uh, so excited, they don't get it. And so the first thing I think we're called to do, the first way we're called to be people of th who give thanks, who do thanksgiving, who rest well, that we should be people who are known for celebrating well, but celebrating with a reason, a very specific reason. And it's a reason of what God has done for us. Because of the great things that God has done for us, we should be celebrating well and we should be celebrating often. Quite commonly, I think that Christians are thought of as the people who don't celebrate at all. Those musty, fuddy-duddies who just want to be uh, dressed in grey and rather monochrome and not particularly celebratory. But how, how do the exiles, the returned exiles, celebrate here? 
Well, I know that they actually, it's not just uh, a party in, in any regard, but it's a party in a very specific way, that they enjoy fo- choice food and sweet drinks. And I think this is actually uh, a mimicry of what the prophets have told them time and time again, that when the exile is over, when uh, you return to the land, and also when God returns, you'll be, there'll be a great banquet, a great feast, a great... Uh, time of celebration where you will come together over the best food, the best drinks. You will celebrate in the best way. And so they sit down to eat together. We've just come out of uh, nine weeks of looking at Luke's gospel, spending time uh, traveling with Jesus on the road. And I wonder if you've noticed that that's actually what Jesus does. As God comes to his people in the form of Jesus, as Jesus comes to be with his people, to usher in the kingdom, he comes eating and drinking. Uh, One of the commentators uh, says that quite often uh, you see in, in Jesus is always at a party, going to dinner or coming from a meal, usually with people that are considered a little bit on the nose. Jesus in Luke's gospel is the, the guy who is just eating and drinking with everyone. And I, I take it that eating in the gospels, just like eating in our society, isn't just a function of sustenance, as if uh, some form of gruel uh, or some form of soylent green uh, may be just some something that you can sustain yourself without any form of pleasure. I do note that some company in the States has started producing a product that they're actually referring to as Soylent Green, which is just this goo that you can eat, and it supposedly contains all the nutrients that you need. It's flavorless, it's boring, and, but it's sustenance. And a few commentators who have uh, tried this, one, tried it, one blogger said, I'm going to try it for a year. Anyone want to guess on how long they made it for? 17 days. Gruel. Goo. Eating, for our society, just like I think it would have been for Jesus in the Gospels, is actually far more than that. It's both celebration... It is remembering of God's goodness to us. It's why we say grace before it. We thank God for his provision for us. But it's also the breaking down of barriers. So it's the moment where you sit down and you have to look someone else in the face or at least sit next to someone. And if you don't like them, well, you're stuck. If you want to be eating that tasty food... You're eating it sitting next to someone or across from someone. In many ways, you have to be there and treat someone else like a person, like a real person. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's what Jesus does so often in the Gospels. Jesus comes and sits down at various people's houses. And it's difficult. Stuff comes up. We see... Uh, early on in the, in the Gospels, uh, Simon the Pharisee is challenged about the fact that he doesn't welcome Jesus 
by offering to wash his feet, wash his hands. Levi, the tax collector, the one who is cast out of society, Jesus says to him, come, I'm going to eat at your table tonight. We see it time and time again where that just escalates over and over in the Gospels. Mary sits down with her alabaster jar and breaks it over Jesus, washes his feet with her tears and, and anoints him with the, with the perfume in her jar. Now I think for, if that had happened in any of our dinners, if that happens at the pub you're in, that would be just as confronting, I think, as most people seeing that icon for low church evangelicals. But that's what eating brings about in the Gospels. And I take it that's what eating brings about for us. Rosario Butterfield uh, has a wonderful book uh, on hospitality uh, where she reflects on uh, a year of spending her time uh, and why is it always a year that people try things for? But anyway, um, a year spending his time being very uh, consi- consistent, concerted about hospitality. She co- it's called Gospel Comes with a House Key. And that is a year, that, and, and more it continues on, of her letting people into her house to eat and drink with them regularly. One of the chapters, she describes an awkward situation where... Uh, a guest uh, at, at her house uh, reflects on the nature of a, two scandals in the church. One, a sexual abuser, uh, and one, an uh, um, elder who was unfaithful to his wife and then ended up leaving the church. And she reflects that uh, throughout uh, this meal, there was this sense of unease as uh, everyone had, it was called to reflect on their position in relationship to what had happened in their church. But it was around the context of a meal, a context of eating and drinking together, that this could happen well. In this last week of Synod, uh, we have debates about big and important things, debates that threaten to become arguments quite regularly. I often feel like uh, we should actually probably have Synod more around a table. And it's been my practice over the last few years to try and get people who I disagree with to come and have lunch with me or dinner with me before or after synod. That's actually been a great blessing, to sit and be with others around a meal. But I think in the Gospels, it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than just being with someone else. Because it goes to the heart of what it means to be with someone else, as Jesus has been with us. Because eating entails a theology of presence. Just as we are present with each other across a table and over a meal, Jesus became present with us in our society. He came eating and drinking because he is ultimately present with us as a person. And actually that's a means of grace for us. Eating together mimics, it reflects the grace that has been given to us in Jesus coming for us. A little while ago, uh, my, my oldest uh, asked, why do we, not why do we say grace, but why is it called grace? You know, why, do you, why is this prayer that you do before a meal called grace? 
It's actually simply because it's a reflection of the grace that's been given to us in the provision of God for us. We remember the provision of the meal, the physical uh, things that we're eating, but we remember more, more than that, the provision of Jesus for us as his meal. And in John's Gospel, the, the section of John's Gospel that was read out, we hear Jesus confronting the people. You, your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. The, and, and I do note that they complained about the manna. Even though it's sweet and tastes like honey, and it probably sounds like something that would be fairly nice to eat. After a few years, they've got bored of it, and they grumble at, at Moses because the manna just tastes like manna. And imagine eating the same thing over and over again. But Jesus says, actually, no, I've come to replace that manna. I've come to be the one who gives up his flesh and blood for them as a sacrifice for them, the means of grace, the means of sustenance for his people. And so Jesus takes a meal with his disciples, a meal that is already designed to communicate grace, the grace of coming out of Egypt in the Passover. And he redefines it. He redefines around this meal that we're going to share soon. The Passover, as Jesus redefines it, becomes the Lord's Supper. But instead of just merely being food for the stomach, it is a reflection and remembrance of the grace that has been, has been given. Jesus becomes the provision for his people. He becomes the content of the meal. He says to them, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The grace that has come through Jesus' provision for his people. It reflects God's track record of providing for his people. The same track record that cuts up the Israelites as they hear uh, Ezra reading the, um, reading the law to them is actually the track record which is reflected in Jesus coming and dying on a cross for his people. And so eating this meal and eating every meal should reflect that means of grace for us, reminding us that we ultimately cannot feed ourselves, no matter how tasty a meal I can, I can make. I can't feed, feed myself on my own. Ultimately, it's God who's provi providing that for me as much as I might be the intermediary step in making it into something that I would like to eat. It is still God's provision. And so I think that rhythm of celebration comes alive in the rhythm of eating together. We celebrate them. One of the ways we celebrate that means of grace is we eat together regularly. We eat around tables. Looking across a table or looking across a bar at someone who we disagree with often sitting side by side with people that we love, diffusing difficult tensions of our society, looking each other in the eye and longing for a time where there won't be any division, loving each other well, challenging each other, crying with each other, offering grace to each other, celebrating God's goodness to us. And I think that no, that aspect of celebrating God's goodness to us in eating together also speaks powerfully to our last rhythm. That rhythm of Sabbath. 
that I think quite often get is reflected uh, is reflected on our society. I notice, that, so as I said earlier, that the notion of a tech Sabbath is uh, a runaway success. Uh, Tiffany Schlein, who is a uh, Jewish author, a secular Jew, has written several books on the tech Sabbath, uh, one of which is currently number one uh, on, the Amazon, on several Amazon lists. Uh, the notion of being forced and forcing yourself to give up uh, and rest, give up your own autonomy and give up your own vices and rest for a while. But I think often if our culture rests, it's a reflection of what we can do for ourselves. The very nature that we set up a weekend is because we work. We refer to hump day as the downward slide towards the weekend. We then have uh, TGI Fridays uh, because that's a reflection of thank, thank God or thank goodness it's Friday, depending on which part of the world you live in. And that's a reflection of the fact that we're, we have the weekend because we've worked. Everyone has Monday-itis at having to return to work. Even there's a clothing store, which I find just a bit bizarre, that is called Working for the Weekend. I can't decide whether that's you are working so you can have a weekend or the clothes are working for you so that the weekend, your weekend clothes are different because the working for the weekend clothes look actually far more like weekend clothes. But hey... Uh, it reflects in our society that we define our rest by our work. But the Passover, if the Passover is a great reminder of God's provision for us, then the Sabbath is not a reminder of our work. It's a reminder of God's work. In Genesis, we see a pattern that God works for six days and then rests. And he sets that up as a pattern for his people. Uh, Jesus in, is recorded in the Gospel of Mark saying uh, that, ma- that the Sabbath is not made for man. But, uh, so man is not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath is made for man. That the pattern is given so that we can remember what God has done, not what we do. The Sabbath is a regular reminder for us that God's provision is exponentially greater than our own ability to provide for ourselves. In the ancient world, where you are literally reliant on the soil that you are farming and the fact that weeds grow up, whether or not you're um, tending to the, to the soil, it's not like when you have a Sabbath, the weeds are suddenly going to stop growing. Trust me, whenever I leave my garden alone, which is quite regularly, uh, everything grows whether or not I want it to grow. And even the things which were planted in there before I planted the garden, they still grow too. Uh, you can just ask my tenants about the passion fruit vine, which has been planted 10 years ago, which is still growing no matter how many times we try and pull it out. But for the engineers, if that is the case, then the Sabbath is a time of downing tools and trusting that God will provide for them even if they cannot provide for themselves or even if they choose not to provide for themselves. It's a reflection of the provision that God has given them. And I think it should be that for us as well. We should be dropping our own strivings to not, not just reflect on the work that we've done, but reflect on God's provision for us. The world keeps spinning. The trees keep growing. We still breathe. 
This little fly here keeps annoying me. Regardless of whether or not we strive for it. And just the next chapter in John's Gospel, you have a large debate about what the purpose of the Sabbath is. And Jesus says that even if um, the people stop working, God is still working on the Sabbath. He is still making the world turn. He is still holding everything together. But he still sets up a pattern of rest for his people. But I don't think this should look like sloth or restriction. Because they're the ways that our society seeks to deal with it. We either sit and we binge watch Netflix or we put our, our Netflix ID or our Apple TV or our whatever device in a jewel-encrusted box. In fact, it should be the release from restriction. Because Sabbath, for our society, should be an almighty cry for justice. The justice of a society that never seeks to rest. That always cries more, more, more. That doesn't seek to rest in God's goodness for his people. That is consumed by hurry and the pursuit of work. We as a people of God should be notably different to that. To set aside time to Sabbath and to rest in God's goodness for us, rather than crying more in unlimited measure. That day of rest where we, sh- we can Sabbath together, reflecting God's goodness for us together, as well as individually. Eating together, celebrating together. Not legalistically, but lovingly. Not slothfully, but actively celebrating. Actively remembering. That's, I think, radical for the church, let alone our world that doesn't know how to rest. And so I think that the rhythm of Sabbath is actually one of the most powerful rhythms of all. It's appropriate that it should be the last in our uh, pattern of rhythms because it informs all the rest. Just as blessing informs forward and we bless, and some of the ways that we bless is that we eat and we listen and that we speak to each other and we Sabbath together. So too, Sabbath ties all of the others together. It is our ultimate form of blessing to the world by remembering his goodness, God's goodness to the world that he has created, the world that he sent his son to die for. It's radical for our society. We should be a people who are known for celebrating well, celebrating God's goodness to his people, eating together, breaking down barriers as we remember God's grace to us as he broke down the ultimate barriers for us. Sabbathing, celebrating God's goodness to us, giving thanks and praise for what God has done for us, not by what we can do, but what he has already done. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you you that it is by what you have done that we can uh, become right with you. That you give us many means and mechanisms, many rhythms to be able to reflect that to, to our world. 
many ways that we can uh, display your love and provision and grace to our world. I pray that you would help us to enact these well, that you would help us to bless uh, each other, bless your world, that you would make us listening people, that you would help us to speak into your world, speak to each other, that you would help us to celebrate well, eating together, breaking down barriers, reflecting your grace to us, and that you would help us to Sabbath well, to rest in your grace, rest in your goodness, rest in what you have done for us. Amen.